steeped in human blood that deals with demons. Demon resurrection of those forces which roam the forest and dark powers of man's domain. The first few pages warn that these enduring creatures may lie dormant but are never truly dead. They may be recalled to active life through the incantations presented in this book. It is through recitation of these passages that the demons are given license to possess the living. It's just after midnight in the heartland of Cajun country, Friday the 13th, beneath a full moon. I'm hoping these circumstances uh, lend a little bit of black magic to this endeavor. I'll be your guide, your shaman, your witch doctor. I'll be your host. My name is Travis Maxwell Boone. I won't be doing this alone, however. Uh, eventually, I'll be joined by two other hosts, maybe some guests down the line, and the first few episodes will be introductions to these co-hosts of mine, Ricky and Angel. But enough about them. I was born in a small town, Mamou, Louisiana, a population of less than 4,000 people, and it prides itself on being the Cajun music capital of the world home to the world-renowned Fred's Lounge. Uh, every year, Mamu hosts a uh, festival. You've probably heard of it. It's called Mardi Gras. The locals and the tourists shut down the main drag, and they partake in a very old-fashioned celebration. They ride horses drunkenly. They quote-unquote run Mardi Gras, where they uh, ride trailers and create floats. You know, parade down Main Street. Well, it's 6th Street in Mamu, but being brought up in a town like this that celebrates these traditions, I think it may have sort of opened me up to expressing myself, which I began to do at an early age. The first film I ever saw in theaters was Disney's The Lion King, and after that I began drawing constantly creating my own characters, creating my own stories. And my parents saw this, and they encouraged it. They pushed me to be artistic. I wanted to be a novelist in high school and a film director. I was big into Stephen King, Dean Kuntz, Clive Barker, some of the major horror authors. And all of that began when I had started reading Goosebumps a few years prior. My school had this summer reading program, and... I picked the smallest books I could because I wasn't much of a reader at the time, but I was hooked by these stories. Eventually, my interest switched to music after I got into the band Modest Mouse. 
Isaac Brock and company made me want to pick up a guitar and start writing my own songs. And this led me to the fanciful idea that one day I might tour in a band and eventually I moved to New Jersey which was close to New York City, the mecca and hub of art, thinking oh I might strike it there. All that eventually didn't didn't pan out and I moved back to Louisiana. At this point in time I'm married and a father of three and after getting into many different podcasts I wanted to start my own. But the origins of the nightclub they really began when I was a very young kid. My grandfather had a camp at Bundix Lake and late at night we'd watch Tales from the Crypt. And on my own time, I would watch shows like Goosebumps, based on the aforementioned books, and shows like Are You Afraid of the Dark. I also grew up watching movies like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Neverending Story, children's films that had a dark bent to them. This would later lead to me staying up late at night, alone in my room, watching Monster Vision, hosted by Joe Bob Briggs, who now has a show on the horror app Shudder. I highly recommend it. The last drive-in. It's good shit. This early fascination with horror spurred on me reading horror novels and watching horror movies. And when I lived in New Jersey, there was an overnight talk radio show I would listen to while doing my job. I worked overnight in New York City doing pest control work. And the show that played late at night was Coast to Coast AM. At the time, it was hosted by George Norrie. I've always been somewhat of a skeptic, but I leave room for the what-if, because the what-if is fascinating. Things like horror movies, horror novels, overnight talk radio shows about conspiracy theories and the paranormal, it's all huge what-ifs. And the season that most celebrates the what-ifs and the paranormal and the supernatural is of course Halloween. Without a doubt, this is my favorite time of year. When the seasons start to change, and we all know that the seasons, if we look at them a certain way, are a metaphor for life. We bloom, we grow, then things start to fade, and eventually they die. And death seems to be at the center of most horror. You can't go far in a horror story without encountering death. My earliest encounter with death, my first real encounter with coming face to face with it was when my uncle died and then came back to life. I remember standing by the kitchen table when he had came to visit and he was telling a story about him dying on the operating table. The doctors even went to tell his wife that he had passed away, but they resuscitated him. What really caught me, frightened me to my core and dug itself into my bones was him saying that on the other side of death, he didn't see anything. Up until that point, I would say I was a Christian-ish. I was brought up in a Christian home, and around this age, 12, 13, I began struggling with my faith. The idea of dying and not existing had never really entered my mind, because I believed rock solid, there's a heaven, there's a hell. If you're good, you're going one way. If you're bad, you're going down. Burn, baby, burn. Which itself is a scarier notion than complete and utter annihilation. All of that being said, I think that's sort of why I gravitate towards horror, towards 
pontificating about the supernatural, about the supposed unexplained, and I do look into scientific evidence and reasons and explore avenues in which these things can be explained away, but I still dig the fuck out of it. I don't want to prattle on and on about me, but I just thought a little background information at the moment would uh, help any listeners understand why I wanted to start a show like The Nightclub. And for this first episode, since it's being released on Friday the 13th, I thought we would talk about it. Not the franchise, although we'll get there someday. More specifically, Paraskeva Decatriophobia, or the fear of Friday the 13th as a day. Triskaidekaphobia is the fear of the number 13. This can be found in many cultures. The superstitions surrounding Friday the 13th could have come from the Middle Ages, but this is speculation. Some even say it started with Jesus' Last Supper and Crucifixion. There were 13 people present in the upper room, Jesus being part of the 13, along with his 12 apostles. And there's even a few who say that Judas, the betrayer, was the 13th person to sit at the table. Although, how the hell they know what order people sat in back then is beyond me. Another suggested origin for this superstitious date is when Philip IV of France had hundreds of the Knights Templar arrested. Although, this was invented by Dan Brown to sell a few novels. But the idea of unlucky calendar dates could go all the way back to Mesopotamian civilizations. Certain days of the year were deemed lucky or unlucky. This could be due to certain numbers sounding like certain words, perhaps being too close to the word death. Danish astronomer, astrologer, and alchemist Tycho Brahe, I think that's how you say his name, I could be wrong about this, was a very superstitious person, and he considered some days of the year to be very unfortunate, going so far as to say some women shouldn't get pregnant on this day, and certain people shouldn't work on this day, otherwise they might fall off of a ladder and die. And homeboy Tycho died in exile in Prague, so he seemed to have fallen on some misfortune himself. A lot of the days that he pointed out as being unlucky are considered uh, not good for magical work, with the black books of Elverum stating that these days should be avoided for magic practice. And medieval calendars even had these days labeled Egyptian days, where it would be considered unlucky to start a business, conduct business, and there'd even be days where physicians were discouraged from performing bloodletting which in and of itself is fucking nuts. Some would scoff at this sort of idea, though. In 1881, some New Yorkers, who was led by U.S. Civil War veteran Captain William Fowler, wanted to put an end to this superstitious idea. They formed a cabaret club, which they called the 13 Club. They met on January 13, 1881, at 8.13 p.m., where 13 people sat down in room 13, and the guest walked in under a ladder, and they were seated among piles of spilled salt. Thank God Harry and Lloyd weren't there, otherwise Seabass would kick some ass because there would have been fucking salt shakers flying around. 
This superstition even spread to NASA, where they started to rename their shuttle missions when they approached the number 13. This likely had something to do with Apollo 13 itself, which was launched April 11, 1970 at 1313 military time, and it suffered an oxygen tank explosion on April 13th. It did return safely to Earth, but all these unfortunate events taking place around the number 13, uh, it even led some of the more intelligent among us to reconsider what they were and weren't willing to do when it came to incorporating that number. To dive slightly deeper, and this is all cursory, but the reason the number 13 itself might be considered lucky or unlucky might have something to do with lunar-solar calendar cycles, because there are 12.41 lunations per solar year, hence 12 months, and the smaller one is a uh, 13th month, sort of unofficial. This disparity in time could have branched out and helped create this type of superstition. Here I have a list of a few things that have happened on Friday the 13th throughout time that would make many consider the date cursed. Daredevil Sam Patch jumped off a cliff near Niagara Falls on October 17, 1829. This made him famous, which also made his head big. To further his legend, Sam Patch arrived pretty much drunk in Rochester, New York in front of 10,000 people who gathered to watch him leap from the Janice Falls on Friday, November the 13th, 1829. Patch jumped, Patch died. On Friday, September 13th, 1940, Queen Elizabeth and King George VI were having tea when five bombs struck Buckingham Palace, destroying the Royal Chapel. Another burst the water main and three people were injured, one of them killed. On July 13th, 1951, heavy rains flooded many parts of Kansas where in Topeka, the Kansas River rose to 40.8 feet, which was close to 15 feet above the flood stage and 6 feet higher than any flood ever measured to that date. Topeka was a lake. The damage caused by these floods was $935 million, which would be around $6.4 billion today. Another murderous act of nature occurred on Friday, November 13, 1970 in Bangladesh. A cyclone killed around 300,000 people. When this Category 3 hurricane, sustaining winds of 115 miles an hour, surged the Bay of Bengal, the residents there had nowhere to go. People were climbing trees to try to get out of the water and they were swept away. The music world lost one of its most influential rappers on Friday, September 13, 1996, when Tupac Shakur was shot to death in Las Vegas. His murderer or murderers are still unknown. And lastly, Alfred Hitchcock was born on August 13, 1899. The master of horror, had he lived to be a hundred, would have turned that age on August 13, 1999, which would have been a Friday. And speaking of horror movies, I'm going to get on to the main meat of uh, tonight's first episode. I wanted to talk about a horror movie that really, really scared the shit out of me as a kid. I remember learning about it from my dad. We were up late one night, we had just finished watching The Matrix, and we were having a conversation. Don't know what led to it, but he told me about a film he saw when he was around my age, which my age at the time was probably 10 or 11. I vividly remember him describing the card scene from this movie. 
and telling me about the trees being alive. He had trouble at first recalling the name and said it was something like the evil dead. At the time, I thought it's probably not exactly the name because the name sounds a little corny, but I went to family video shortly thereafter, and there it was on the shelf. I rented it, went home, climbed in bed, got under the sheets, lights were out, and from the opening frame, I was hooked. This movie floored me from start to finish, and it's a pretty quick watch at only 85 minutes. The movie was filmed in 1979 by Sam Raimi, along with his friends Robert Tappert and Bruce Campbell, Tappert producing, Campbell starring. In order to build interest from investors, Raimi and the cast had made a short film before this called Within the Woods, and this allowed them to achieve a budget of around $90,000, which they later ballooned to somewhere between three hundred and fifty and 400000 Most of the movie was shot in Morriston, Tennessee, this is one of my favorite stories about the film. They had decided to shoot in Tennessee because it wouldn't be as cold there, or so they thought, as it would be in their home state of Michigan. The particular year they decided to shoot, Michigan saw a record high winter, and Tennessee saw a record low. So they basically drove out of state just to freeze their asses off anyway. The movie screened at Cannes in 1982. Stephen King comes into play here because he gave the film a rave review. That allowed the film to get picked up by a distributor, New Line Cinema. Worldwide, it eventually grossed close to $30 million, and at the time was one of the most successful independent films ever made, eventually achieving cult status and spawning a franchise of sequels, a television show, video games, comic books, and a remake. Slash reboot. Slash quasi-sequel? Director Sam Raimi, who also wrote the script, and Bruce Campbell had set out to film a remake of Within the Woods titled Book of the Dead. Raimi was heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, and he had turned 20 just before shooting this. He considered making the film a sort of rite of passage. Joining the cast was Ellen Sandweiss, Hal Del Rich, Betsy Baker, and Teresa Tilly, along with Bruce Campbell. A, li a little interesting anecdote here. Uh, Joe Cohen of the Cohen brothers was an editing assistant for this film. So the Cohens actually had something to do with the Evil Dead, or at least one of them. I think that's pretty damn cool. The film itself opens over a dense fog with a red rippling title card, The Evil Dead. And we see what's known as the Force from the camera's perspective traveling out of the fog and over water through the forest and we see the main characters, Scotty, Cheryl, Shelley, Linda, and our final girl, Ash, who is a male, but, you know, subverting the tropes. And they're driving along up to this cabin, where they pass two hitchhikers waving at them, which happens to be Sam and Robert. Scotty yells at them, Oh, go to hell, I ain't hawking at you, after he almost crashes into a truck. He's also drinking from a mason jar at the beginning of the film, which... I don't know, is it moonshine? After that, they're crossing this rickety bridge. Ash reassures the girls that the bridge is rock solid, and then one of the wheels immediately breaks through it. And this is some of the humor that's in the first movie that doesn't really make itself as apparent until the second film, 
but we'll see it peppered throughout the movie. After they arrive at the cabin, they notice that the swing is steadily knocking against the cabin walls, and it only stops once Scotty grabs the keys from above the door frame. They enter the old cabin, dust suspended in sunbeams from the light pouring in, and we see a deer head mounted on a wall, a fireplace, one of those grandfather ticky-tock clocks, and there's a shed outside that's adorned with various tools, saws, knives, and bones strung from the ceiling, really setting a creepy mood. That evening, Cheryl's drawing the clock that's mounted on the wall when it suddenly stops and begins ringing loudly. The wind picks up, and the swing resumes knocking against the cabin as she hears a low voice from in the woods chanting, Join us. She then starts to draw, completely out of her control, what appears to be a book with a face on it, and then the cellar door starts to shake and rattle. We get a minor jump scare right here to break the tension when the blender is turned on, as the gang's sitting down to the kitchen table to, I guess, start imbibing in alcohol. Ash is conducting a toast, when all of a sudden the cellar door flies wide open. They gather around to see what could have possibly caused this, when Linda suggests that it might have been an animal on Scotty, and Scotty says, an animal? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. This dude's starting to turn into a douche, but he does go down to investigate, and Ash follows him when he doesn't come back. Something I like about this scene is, whenever, he, whenever Ash is descending down the stairs and he looks back up, He's actually back filming in Michigan in a hole that he and Sam had dug into the earth. When he looks up, he's looking back at his fellow castmates who were back in Tennessee. It's almost like time traveling through film, which I think, once you know that sort of trivia, just kind of adds to the charm of it. Because the film itself is very gritty, very low budget, but it works. Ash is carrying a lantern with him, which he uses to light the dark cellar, which has an earthen floor rock walls, cobwebs, and leaking water pipes. The atmosphere and the tension really work well here with the sparse score. Ash eventually walks into a room with these hanging gourds, and he gets jump-scared by Scotty. Scotty shows Ash what he found. A shotgun, a reel-to-reel -reel tape player, a horrifying book with occult illustrations and a face on it, kind of like what Cheryl was drawing earlier and a dagger with a hideous skull carving on the handle. If you look close in this scene, you'll also notice a poster in the background that's been ripped in half. It's a poster for Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. This is sort of an homage to an Easter egg in The Hills Have Eyes, where in Wes Craven's film, there's a poster of Jaws ripped up on the wall. Wes Craven would later go on to have one of his characters in A Nightmare on Elm Street watching The Evil Dead on television. The boys bring the reel-to-reel -reel upstairs, and they start to play it as lightning is crashing outside. On the tape is a professor who says he's been studying a book he found in some Kandarian ruins, which is bound in human flesh and inked in human blood. Here we learn that, through recitation of the book's passages, the Kandarian demons can be awakened and may possess the living. The girls want to turn the tape off, but Scotty, being an asshole, plays the rest of it, which is the incantation. Incantations are a form of magic where a spell or a charm or an enchantment is uttered, and the workings of said spell come to fruition. The ground outside begins to rumble and rise, and a tree branch crashes through the window. Later that night, Ash and Linda have like a cute back and forth where Ash is holding a gift that he has for Linda, but he's pretending to be asleep. 
And after a series of uh, close-ups on his eyes and her eyes and her hands trying to grab the box from his hand, he drops his little act and he gives her a present, which is a necklace with a magnifying glass pendant on it. Never seen anything like that, and I don't think I would get anything like that from my wife. But it was the late 70s, so fuck it. Outside the cabin, the force, again, from the camera's perspective, is roaming from window to window, watching each of these college students as they're getting ready for bed, and it stops on Cheryl brushing her hair. She hears that voice again. Join us. And stupidly walks outside into the foggy dead of night, asking if anyone's out there. From horror springs forth low IQ, I think. And there's this low rumbling tone that we heard whenever we were looking through the window from the perspective of the force, and it completely drops away once Cheryl goes deeper and deeper into the woods. Again, the movie's building tension, and it finally pays off when she's far enough away from the cabin, the demons begin to unleash their evil ways. Loud cracking sounds reveal trees being knocked over by something getting closer and closer to a horrified Cheryl. Vines and branches begin wrapping around her, dragging her, screaming to the ground, and the woods rip her clothes away. This is one of the most notorious scenes in the film, if not the most notorious. And I gotta say, the actress didn't know that they were gonna do this. They sort of filmed this one little instance later, and it wasn't until she saw it at the premiere that she learned about this scene and was rightfully horrified. What happens to her can only be described as tree rape. And after the woods release her, she frantically runs back to the cabin, falling a total of four times along the way. And when she gets back, the door is locked. I guess she locked it behind herself? It's one of those inconsistencies that can either detract or add to the charm. For me, it adds. And as the force approaches, she's let in by Ash, and the force groans as it retreats back into the woods. She tries to explain to everyone that the woods are alive and that they attacked her and that she wants to leave. Scott is an asshat, as usual, but Ash says he'll take her to town. And this leads to a great shot of Ash and Cheryl getting into the car while the other three stand in a doorway of the cabin, backlit and white as fog covers the scene. We get a horror trope fake out as the car doesn't start and Cheryl's convinced it's not going to let us leave. But then the car starts and they begin driving back to town. At a certain point, Ash stops the car to investigate something ahead in the fog, and we get this really bizarre shot where the car is on flat ground, but Ash is walking away, and its he's framed at a Dutch angle. It looks really neat when you're watching the movie, and Raimi does this all the time. He's always got some interesting shots going on. Cheryl follows him, and they see that the bridge that they had crossed earlier is not only unusable, but it looks like it's been mangled, completely destroyed. She sobs and screams as Ash tries to console her. Back at the cabin... After they've returned, and they're listening to the rest of the tape, they learn that the professor's wife eventually got possessed, and uh, the only way he could get rid of this possession was to dismember her body. Now we get the card scene. This is what my dad was telling me about. It's a seven. What suit? Um, diamonds. Shelley and Linda are, are practicing um, their oh ESP. God, the card, you're right. Hey, Ash, I guessed the card right. Yeah, truly amazing. As one of the girls holds up the cards away from the other girl, who can't see, and she's trying to guess the number and the suit. Well, Cheryl, staring out the window in the other direction, begins naming them. Spades. Four hearts. 
Eight of spades. Two spades. Jack of diamonds. Jack of clubs. Why have you disturbed our sleep? She flings herself around and begins levitating, her face now completely distorted, and a demonic voice is telling them that one by one we will take you. And then she collapses to the floor. Ash and Linda go to check on her. And Cheryl pops up and stabs Linda in the ankle with a pencil. This is brutal as hell. Ash is thrown into some shelves and they collapse on him. While Scotty tries to help and gets knocked aside. But he picks up an axe and clubs the dead-eyed Cheryl. And she falls down into the cellar. And they lock the chain on the cellar door to the floor. And this leads to some of the film's most iconic imagery of the dead-eyed Cheryl watching them through the crack in the chained-down cellar door. Shelley's repulsed by the change in Cheryl's appearance and yells, Her eyes! For God's sake, what happened to her eyes? As the dead-eyed laughs, the forces again approaching the cabin and eventually attack Shelley by busting in through her bedroom window. Scotty goes looking for her after hearing the glass breaking, and after a few minutes of searching, he's attacked by Shelley while Cheryl is taunting and screaming as they struggle. Ash tries to help, but is thrown into the shelves and they fall on him yet again. This is more of that humor I was talking about. Dead-Eyed Shelley tries stabbing Scotty with the skull dagger, but he cuts her hand with his own pocket knife. This leads Shelley to chew off the wounded hand, but she's then stabbed in the back with the skull dagger. She screams, falls to the floor, her little nubby hand and mouth are spewing milk or cum, I don't know what, some white substance, and then blood and she falls silent and still. Kandarian tricks. She eventually gets back up, and Scotty begins hitting her with the axe, chopping and hacking the limbs and the body to pieces as blood pours across the camera lens. Strown across the cabin floor, the many severed body parts are wriggling as the boys, in a state of shock, decide that they're going to have to go bury her. After disposing of Shelley's body, Scotty says he will walk out on one of the trails, or go looking for a trail, something like that. He blatantly tells Ash he does not care what happens to Linda. It's his girlfriend, and he can look after her. And Ash, not wanting to leave her because she can't walk, stays behind. Scotty abandons them, and ah, it's at this point I'm rooting for this guy's demise. Ash checks on Linda's wound, and this black web-like infection quickly spreads. Her eyes pop open, pure white, and she begins cackling. Scotty returns right away, severely wounded, and the dead-eyed Linda is sitting in the bedroom doorway, giggling. Scotty is trying to tell Ash that the woods are indeed alive, and both the female dead-eyes are laughing maniacally, which freaks Ash out, pisses him off, and he starts backhanding Linda over and over while she's laughing like a crazy person. He then grabs the shotgun to possibly put her out of her misery, which Scotty is telling him to do, no surprise. Linda starts begging for help. She seems normal again, and from the cellar, Cheryl claims to be okay, and she wants to be let out. Ash nearly falls for more of the Kandarian tricks, but uh, Cheryl's hand bursts through the floor, grabs him, and Linda's sitting in the doorway giggling again. And this is when she begins her creepy lullaby. Not another peep. Time to go to sleep. 
Ash drags her outside, not able to take any more of it, and a blood-red moon is blocked out by black clouds. Back inside, Ash is in denial, saying it'll be morning soon and they'll all be able to go home together as he pours water down a dead Scotty's throat. Again, this isn't side-splitting, but when you're watching it, it's at least enough for a chuckle. Linda suddenly pops up, cutting Ash with the dagger, and I've always had a sort of an issue with this scene. While they're struggling, she gets pushed away, and before she was holding the, the dagger the way you'd think someone would normally hold it, but then she switches hands, grabs it, with the, grabs it by the blade instead of the handle with her hand upside down, You'll have to see the movie to, to get what I'm talking about, but it's just odd. Ash manages to trip Linda over Scotty's body, impaling her on the dagger, and he drags her outside once again. But as he pulls her body across the floor, the camera pans with it, and it stops on the dead-eyed Cheryl watching them from the cellar. Great fucking shot. Outside in the shed, Ash chains his girlfriend's body down to a table with the intention of cutting her up with a chainsaw, but can't bring himself to do it when he sees the necklace he had given her. He cries over her body before carrying it outside to bury it next to Shelley's dismemberment. While Ash is digging, Cheryl starts to push on the cellar door inside, and Linda wakes up, trying to kill Ash again, leading to a fight where she scratches the shit out of his leg with blood dripping and pouring everywhere. And I gotta mention, at some point, Ash is bashing her in the head with this clearly fake wooden beam, like bludgeoning her. Uh, I don't know, I think it's classic. But this ends with Ash beheading her with the shovel he was digging with. And also during this scene, we get the iconic shot of Ash dumping soil onto the camera. And this would be from Cheryl's perspective. Also, after he beheaded her, her body fell right on him and blood just spurted out all over his face. But when he goes back in the cabin, his face is completely clean. Charming continuity errors here. Back in the cabin, he sees the cellar door is wide open. And he's attacked from Cheryl from the outside of the cabin. He gets a shot off from the shotgun before closing up all the doorways, realizing that he needs more shells. So he makes his way back down into the cellar where they originally found them. This entire scene is eerie as the pipes leak blood, a light bulb fills with blood, the wall sockets bleed, the walls drip blood, and a movie projector comes on by itself while the projection is also blood covered. And Ash is soaked in blood as the pipes burst, the light bulb explodes, the movie projector goes off the fritz throwing sparks everywhere. It's insane. Ash makes his way back upstairs after getting some shells and we get a shot of him through the beams of the steps from below. And when he surfaces, things get really surreal. The clock on the wall is ticking and talking, but crashing loudly every time it goes back and forth while the hands are spinning out of control. The wind outside is howling and fog is rapidly blowing across the landscape. And the camera uses a lot of strange angles as Ash makes his way around the cabin. And the window shutters are banging and we get the sound of his heart beating faster and faster as the camera looks down on Ash and passes above the ceiling beams. Again, incredible use of the camera and the sound design of the film. He comes to a mirror, reaches for it, but when he touches it, his hand goes through into a liquid reflection. And at this point, Ash has lost his fucking mind. He's up against the door, shaking, sweating, and clinging to the necklace he had given Linda when he's attacked again by Cheryl. At this point, Dead-Eyed Scotty pops up. 
He's being attacked from the outside. He's being attacked from the inside. And eventually Scotty lifts him up trying to choke him to death. And we get one of the craziest eye gouging scenes I've ever seen. Ash pushes both thumbs through Scotty's eyes and we get the thickest tomato sauce ever pouring out of those eye holes. He then pulls a piece of wood Scotty must have gotten stabbed with when the trees attacked him outside when he tried to leave. And a blood faucet is turned on because it's just pouring out of him at this point. Ash then notices that the book is next to the lit fireplace and it's sort of smoking, which is also causing his dead-eyed friends to be smoking as well. He tries to get to the book, but he's pulled to the ground by Scotty. And we get another great image here of Ash's bloody hand right next to Linda's necklace, which has fallen down and now the chain is in the shape of a skull. He uses this necklace as sort of a lasso or a hook by tossing it across the room and latching it onto the book to drag it closer to him. In the meantime, while Scotty's pulling him by the legs, Cheryl's made her way inside, she's grabbed a fire poker, and she's beating the shit out of Ash with it. He does manage to get a hold of the, of the book, and he tosses it in the fireplace. The Deadites stop suddenly, and a disgusting claymation scene ensues, where the Deadites decompose into oatmeal mush and cockroaches, and Ash gets covered in even more blood. In the aftermath of all this carnage, as the morning sun rises, Ash exits the cabin. The film then cuts to the shot of a leaf on the ground, and it's the Force. From the Force's perspective, we tear down the hill, through the back door of the cabin, out through the front, and straight into the screaming face of our main character as the movie ends. After seeing this for the first time, I was completely blown away, and this movie showed me what horror really was. I know that was kind of a brief synopsis, and... I'm hoping one day we dive deep into the franchise on this show, but I just sort of wanted to run through it because it has a legacy and a following that just adds to the lore of the film itself. And before I began describing the plot of the film, I had mentioned that Sam Raimi, the writer-director, was really, really influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Well, the book in the film is actually called The Necronomicon. And that is an artifact in H.P. Lovecraft's mythos. So you can see Raimi clearly wearing his influences on his sleeve. Much like I think I'm going to do on this show. When it comes to the nightclub, you can expect more horror talk. Us doing deep dives into the supernatural. Possibly some cryptids. I don't know. I guess kind of whatever we want. But if you want to reach out to us. You can email us with the address thenightclubpodcast at gmail.com you can also find us on facebook by searching the nightclub podcast we have an instagram again the nightclub podcast and a twitter the nightclub pod and please go check out the official website thenightclub.fireside.fm where i'm going to be running a blog posting new episodes we should be available on most podcatchers. I know at the time of this recording, we're definitely on Stitcher and TuneIn and Radio Public. Hopefully soon we'll be on Apple Podcasts. But if there's one you know of that we're not on, let me know and I'll try to get the RSS feed hooked in. Like I said earlier... The next couple of episodes will be introductions to the co-hosts, but then it'll be the Halloween month. 
And that's when you can expect things to start going bump in the night. I've been Travis Maxwell Boone. Thank you for communing with me on this first meeting of the nightclub. And do me a favor. Stay spooky, bitches. Bitches.